Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. Walk on over to Walters for Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Puck drops at 8 p.m. on Monday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is not an intentional walk here. They're going to pitch to Soto with first base open. At least start to pitch to him. Eflin sets and deals. Swinging a high drive. Right field. Castellanos back. Forget about it. It is gone. Into the second deck. Hits a chopper over on the third base side. Tatro off the mound. Bare hands. Throws. Bell digs it out for the final out of the inning. That's a quality seven innings, and he gets a heck of an ovation. One ball, one strike. Two outs, nobody on. 9-3 Nationals. The set. Abbott ready. He deals. Swinging a slow bouncer left side. Charging in Garcia. He gloves. He throws on the run. Bell's got it, and the game is over. And so is the eight-game losing streak. Congratulations to Jackson Tatro, his first major league win after seven strong innings. And the Nationals win going away. They down the Phillies by a final of 9-3 on a very happy Father's Day. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, June 20th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, say what you want about the 2022 Nationals, but they now have done what the 2012 Nats, the 2016 Nats, and the 2017 Nats did not do, and that is win game five of a series at Nationals Park. Yes, the 2022 Nats got the job done. A 9-3 victory over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon to end an eight-game losing streak to end a 12-game losing streak to the Phillies and end a 13-game losing streak against teams in the National League East. A brutal stretch for the Nats. 14 games in 13 days is done. The stretch did not go supremely well. Nats went just 3-11 during the stretch, but the Nats get the win on Sunday afternoon. Mark, for the first time in a long time, we are here to discuss a Nationals victory. So you're saying that this Game 5 victory absolves all the previous Game 5 losses? The demons have been exercised, my friends. They are gone. (laughs) Funny, I thought the wild card game and the game at Dodger Stadium and the NLCS and the World Series did all that. But that's all right. It was this game, Game 70 of this season, that exercised the demons. And you know who did exercise some demons? 
for this pitching staff. Jackson Tatro, who saw that one coming? The savior of the pitching staff. That was a brilliant performance. Unbelievable. This is baseball, man. When you think you know, you are reminded that you know nothing. We are all dummies when it comes to talking about this sport of baseball because things that make no sense end up happening. And, you know, it's not that he was good. It's that he was really good in this game on Sunday afternoon. I mean, this might be the most stunning performance by a Nats pitcher this season. I know Patrick Corbin throwing a complete game at Coors Field is hard to top. I get that. But I don't know, man. This was Jackson Tatro's second ever major league start. He's not some like uber prospect to begin with. Remember, Jackson Tatro at the time of being called up from AAA Rochester, ERA of 419 over 12 starts for Rochester this season. And he goes out there on Sunday afternoon with this pitching staff on fumes, three runs, all of which are unearned in seven innings. He became just the third Nats pitcher this season to complete at least seven innings in a game. This was a stunner. And he did it on 91 pitches. In his first start, he threw exactly 91 pitches in four innings, which has been like the norm all week for everybody. Like we were just begging somebody to get through the fifth on fewer than triple digits. And so for him to be that efficient, it really was remarkable. Props to him. He said that it was better this time that, you know, he had the five days to prepare. He had sort of the chaos of his big league debut out of the way. He felt much cleaner with his mechanics and just just more comfortable in general. But, I mean, that's a big-time start, and I love the way that he finished it, which is he takes this comebacker 105 miles an hour off his ankle, goes down and tries to get up and goes down again. And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, he broke his ankle or something like that. This one is hit back up the middle off of Tatro's leg. It caroms all the way into foul territory right side. On the first base side where it's picked up by Kbet Ruiz and Tatro is hurt as he took a shot off the leg. And Davey Martinez, Paul Lassard, the trainer, come running out there. They're thinking the same thing. They're prepared to help him up and help him off the field, assuming he can't put any weight on the foot. And he says, hang on, I think I'm going to be all right. And they're like, uh, okay, you sure? He says, yeah, yeah. Let me. You want to throw a warm-up pitch? Yeah, yeah, let me do that. He throws the warm pitch. Everything looks fine. The crowd roars. They're really excited for him. And he comes out and retires the next three batters, including the last one on a tough play that he had to field himself and make a nice throw. That was a major highlight of the season so far. And it was great. They had another nice crowd here, 32,000, and they stood and applauded for him. I don't know what's going to happen in Jackson Tatro's career beyond this, but he's always going to have this moment to help secure his first win on Father's Day with his family in the stands. That was a very cool moment. Yeah, maybe the best display of machismo by a Nats player since the Jordy Mercer blood scenario of him swallowing (laughs) his own blood last season. I don't know if anything will ever top that, but this was pretty good. This was pretty darn good. So here's what Davey told Jordy Mercer as they're checking on him. Says, if you need to come out, we can put Jan Gomes at third, which means Castro to second. And Mercer's response to that was, I'll just swallow the blood. Jackson Tatro. Three runs, all of which were unearned in seven innings. He only gave up six hits. They were all singles. He issued two walks. He only had two strikeouts, but like Mark said, he threw 91 pitches. So not having a lot of strikeouts helped to keep that pitch count low. I tell you what I really like too. 10 of the 21 outs that he recorded ground ball outs. I don't know if he profiles as a ground ball pitcher or not, but he was getting a bunch of grounders in this game. After he took the comeback or off the lower left leg, he recorded three consecutive ground ball outs to conclude his outing. So now the Nats have two off days over the next four days. Is Tatro here to stay for now, or is that not a given at this point? Well, they've got some options of how they want to do this. 
Now, they made a move after the game. They optioned Corey Abbott back to AAA. He's the guy they just called up Saturday because they needed one more fresh arm because the staff was in such bad shape. He wound up pitching the ninth inning, so at least he got into a game. But let's remember now, on Monday, they are all teams are required to reduce their pitching staffs to 13. So they're going to have to call up a position player, and I expect that to be, sorry to say, Alcides Escobar coming off the IL and joining them on the bench. So we know that Fetty and Corbin will start in Baltimore Tuesday and Wednesday, but you've got off days before and after that, and then a three-game series in Texas. They can do this a few different ways. They could go with a four-man staff for the week and have somebody come out of the bullpen. They could just give everybody extra days off, which maybe wouldn't be the worst thing. But I would imagine we know that Corbin and Fetty and Josiah Gray are in the rotation coming up this week. And then it's a question of Paolo Espino, Jackson Tatro, both of them, one of them. Not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody is available out of the bullpen, maybe Paolo, just because they're not going to need him for a while. But by the end of the week or going into next week, they'll need five starters again. So, yeah, I I think he's going to get another one. I don't think they're going to send him down based on this. And I'm not sure what the alternative is right now anyways. But good stuff from a guy who, you know, was called up earlier in the week essentially because he was the last option available on the night that Steven Strasburg would have pitched. And the way that first one went, you're thinking we may not see a lot of this guy up here. Props to him. He came through with a big performance, and he may have earned himself some more time because of it. Yeah, I mean, you look back at this five-game series against the Phillies, Patrick Corbin in Game 1, Yoan Adone in Game 2, Paolo Espino Game 3, Josiah Gray Game 4, Jackson Tatro Game 5. David Martinez has got to be saying to himself, how did we even make it through this series? Like, how did we even piece this thing together? I mean, it's just, it has been such a wacko last seven days or so for the Nats from a pitching standpoint for all kinds of reasons. You needed this. You needed someone to do something he's not supposed to do, to pitch beyond his means, you know, to go above and beyond. And finally, somebody did that. Tatro did that in this game on Sunday. And, you know, it does follow a nice outing by Josiah Gray on Saturday. So this is the best back-to-back scenario for the Nats in terms of starting pitching in who knows how long. You know, six scoreless innings from Gray on Saturday, seven innings, zero earned runs from Tatro on Sunday afternoon. So excellent job by Jackson Tatro. All the credit in the world to him uh, for the job that he ended up doing. You know, we had been waiting for this Nats offense to come alive in this series. You know, it did to an extent in the 8-7-10 inning loss earlier in the series, but you really did see what we have seen from the Nats sporadically this season on Sunday, which was the offense have one of these games in which it is just on. And the Nats offense was very much on in this game. Nine runs, 12 hits. Uh, The Nats worked four walks in the game, four for 13 with runners in scoring position. These Nats offensive outbursts all have the same feeling of, you know, it's on early in the game. And when it's on the rest of the game, you just have this comfort that like every inning, they're going to do something. And sure enough, in this game, four runs, bottom of the second, two runs, bottom of the fourth, two runs, bottom of the fifth, a run in the bottom of the seventh inning, major production from the bottom of the order. Uh, Batters, what is it? Six, seven, and eight. Luis Garcia, Michael Franco, and Yadiel Hernandez. Uh, Juan Soto only had one hit, but it was a big three-run home run. This is what the Nats are capable of doing. Now, you have like no confidence necessarily that they'll do it in the next game. Who knows, right? But on this day, in this game, when they needed some offense, they got it. And this was impressive. And like you said, you can usually tell early on if it's going to be one of those days. And usually it involves home runs. That Soto blast, I mean, that was as well as he's hit a ball in a while. And you could see that was a cathartic moment for him. He admired it. 
he defiantly threw his bat down towards the dugout and made his way around the bases. And he said that in his mind, what he felt in that moment, he said, it's like flushing all the bad stuff out of your body and finally getting to enjoy a moment like that. He's been really working hard trying to find that feeling again. Now, like you said, it was only one at bat. The rest of the at bats, he didn't really do much, but he had it in that moment. And you would like to believe that he can remember that and figure out how to start having more of those moments. This was a really tough week for Juan Soto. The combination of the team's performance, his role in that, remember he banged up his knee and had to miss a couple games, and then he had an offer for a long stretch. The batting average was down under 220. I mean, he needed this home run, not just for himself, but for the team, because it did establish a four-run lead for them and set them on their way to a nice, comfortable victory at last. Yeah, four-run second for the Nats. Soto's homer, a two-out first pitch, three-run bomb to the second deck in right field to give the Nats that 4 nothing lead, 428 feet per stat cast. But like you said, he didn't do much the rest of the game. Uh, he left five men on base for the game. He only went one for five. Soto in this series only had two hits. He had that infield single uh, the other day, and then he has this three-run homer. So the three-run homer is great. I definitely don't want to minimize it, but we've seen this where he'll struggle, they don't have a big game, and we'll wonder if he's back, and then he'll go back to struggling. So he's got to piece a few of these games together. I think we're past the point now of like saying, did this hit set him off? Maybe it does, but I don't think you can just assume that at this point. But yeah, he needed that homer. It was great to see him get that homer, and it was a key homer in this game, putting the Nats up for nothing. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202 486 3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. A shift, Garcia to the right side. The 1-1 is driven toward right center field. Herrera chasing over. He's closing. He dives. He can't get it. It's off his glove. He rolls over, picks it up, throws it towards second. Garcia going there, and he slides in safely with a double. Sinking line drive off the diving attempt of Odubel Herrera. And Luis Garcia stays hot. Luis Garcia. Look, we talked about his defense. We're going to continue to talk about his defense as long as that's an issue. But what a series he ended up having, uh, especially over the final four games of the series. So Garcia on Sunday afternoon, three for four with a double and two singles. He, over the final four games of the series, went eight for 17 with two doubles and six singles. 
His batting average now at the major league level this season up to 360, 372 on base, 507 slugging. I know we've noted this, but I, I think it's worth continuing to note. He is hitting, and there is a consistency here. The Nats have a lot of streaky guys. Garcia has been very consistent since the Nats called him back up to the majors on June 1st. And we're talking now almost three weeks that he's been up here. It's an 879 OPS. And what he's doing, and this is the difference from maybe the last two years when we would see him, is driving the ball to the opposite field with two strikes, with two outs, with runners in scoring position, you name it. He's coming through in all that kind of situational opportunities for him. And so that's a maturity as a hitter, uh, some growth as a hitter. Davey pointed out, you know, when they keep shifting you like the way they are on the infield, he has the bat skills to be able to go up there and say, I'm going to take it the other way and take the single that they're giving me. And he's doing a really nice job of that. This is really encouraging to see this from him. That's the development of him. You want to see this now on the defensive side, of course. That's what's going to help him stick up here and make him a more complete player. But it's hard not to be impressed with the offense uh, and to believe that no matter what, they're going to find a way to keep him up here. Even if he's not making plays in the field, they'll find somewhere to put him because that bat is going to keep him in here for a while. And it's what they've wanted. And you saw him very quietly. They had him in the sixth spot for this game. I think Davey's been very careful about this, doesn't want to make a big deal out of bumping him way up in the lineup because he doesn't want any thoughts going in his head. Oh, oh, all of a sudden, I'm a number two hitter and I got to act differently. So kind of a gradual thing. He's been hitting eighth a lot, seventh some. Now you saw him hit sixth. I'll be curious to see how this goes and if very slowly he moves his way up to the point that he doesn't even realize that he's hitting higher in the lineup. Yeah, Davey, he continues to tinker with his lineups every game. It's been interesting to follow. Uh, we, for this game on Sunday, for instance, had Lane Thomas, who has been batting first some, batting ninth. We had Josh Bell up to third, Nelson Cruz at fourth, like a, a lot of mixing and matching with the lineups here lately. But to your point about Garcia going the opposite way with two strikes, I mean, that hit that he had in the one run seventh, leadoff opposite field single to left field to beat the shift on a one-two pitch, beautiful piece of hitting. And you knew exactly what he was trying to do. He poked it right there into right field. He had another single in this game on a one-two pitch, a leadoff single to ignite a two-run fifth inning. And then he had a leadoff double in the Nats, four-run second. So look at that, three-run scoring innings for the Nats. Garcia had a leadoff hit. Uh, in each of those innings. So really impressive. And, you know, with the fielding, look, it is frustrating. You didn't have an error in this game. It feels like in so many games, you're almost waiting for the error. But you can figure out the fielding. Like, maybe it ends up being he's not a shortstop. You have him as your second baseman. We saw last season, he can play that competently. You know, there were some struggles there. But if you can hit, they'll figure it out for you. You know, like, the, the bat plays. And if you have that you can sort of figure out the rest. Now, you want him to be good defensively because that's going to bring so much more value to him as a player. But if this is who he can be as a hitter or close enough to this, then he's here to stay, I think. Let's remember this team employed Daniel Murphy as their second baseman for three seasons, okay? <laughs> On winning teams, they can afford to do that if it comes to that. They're going to give him the opportunity for now to play shortstop. He's going to play his way out of that position in all likelihood. But for now, they'll do it see how he handles it, maybe move him over eventually. But the offense has been so encouraging that it does make you believe that he will be here to stay one way or another. Two other guys who hit well for the Nats in this game on Sunday, Yadiel Hernandez and Michael Franco. Uh, Yadiel very much needed a good game. He has really been struggling. Uh, It was nice to see him have a multi-hit game for the first time it felt like in a while. He certainly hasn't had many lately. Uh, Yadiel was the Nats starting left fielder, number five batter, three for four, double RBI single, and another single. And Michael Franco in this game on Sunday afternoon 
starting third baseman, number seven batter, two for three with a two-run homer, an RBI single, and a walk. Uh, he he has been really good with runners in scoring position or just people on base in general. You know, it's not always something that you can carry over like season to season, but this year, for whatever reason, seems to be a Michael Franco year in which when there are ducks on the pond, as the saying goes, this guy comes through and he did it again on Sunday. It's been such a weird thing because there are times you watch him. I'm thinking there was one at bat in a big spot during the doubleheader Saturday where he swung out of his shoes like just trying to hit a 10-run home run to win the game. And you're like, what is this guy doing? But more often than not, he has gotten the job done for them this year. And I give him credit for that. That home run, I mean, nobody was hitting him out to left field the last couple of days, the way the wind was blown. And he cut it right through it. And it wasn't even a wall scraper. It was way over the fence. So that was a good one. The RBI single earlier drew a walk as well. So we've talked about this, but Think back to going into the season with Carter Keboom injured and Michael Franco becomes their third baseman by default because they don't have anybody else off a minor league contract. And he's played all but one game over there so far this season. And he is hitting 259 with a 664 OPS, which is nothing special. But like you said, he's delivering in some big spots. He's provided stability over there. Under the circumstances, he's done everything they could have asked him to do, and it's actually been very valuable to them. So credit to him. I can't say that I saw this coming. I did not think he'd make it through all this as a competent, successful everyday player for them. They were kind of forced to put him in there, but he has lived up to his end of the bargain and done a very nice job for them. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest. He was horrible for the Orioles last year. He has not been horrible for the Nats this year. And, you know, you think about this. So I would rather Carter Keeboom be doing this because that might be a road to somewhere. Franco, for the most part, is a road to nowhere. But do you think Keeboom would be putting up the same numbers Franco is putting up right now? Probably not, at least given Keeboom's history. I mean, maybe he, he would have figured some stuff out this season, but you know, Franco's been a decent player for the Nets. And, uh, you know, on a minor league contract off the year he had last year, you know, you certainly take that and run with it. So we mentioned all three runs of Jackson Tatro being unearned. There was some defensive sloppiness for the Nets in this game. Two errors uh, are what led to those runs uh, being unearned there for Jackson Tatro. So I made mention of Lane Thomas, interestingly, being the Nets' number nine batter in this game. He was a starting center fielder, and he and the Phillies two-run fourth had a pretty bad error. In command, here's Herrera, first pitch swinging, sends Thomas back, feeling for the wall, Lane is there, but he goes off, looks like the top of his glove, and then hits the wall. Thomas fires it into second base, and Herrera is in, head first, on the play, Real Muto moves up to third. Thomas was feeling for the wall, and it looked like he was going to have a play, it looked like it may have grazed the top of his glove, went over it, and then bounced off the wall. I don't know how he didn't catch it. It looked like it was there for him to catch. It was a well-hit ball by Herrera. Not necessarily an easy play, but that's a play your center fielder should make. And I don't know if Thomas lost the ball in the sun. I don't know if the wind picked up the ball or what, but that ended up not being a good moment for him. And then Kbert Ruiz, who has been money on these back pick throws, unfortunately had a two-out run scoring throwing error on a pickoff attempt at first base in what ended up being a Phillies one-run fifth. He sets the letters. Outside target from the catcher. The pitch is high. Snap throw to first is down the line. Soto over to back up the play. The ball hits the sidewall. Surrounding third is Schwarber. He's going to score. And they tried it again. This time the throw sailed high and wide. That's why all three of the runs on Tatro were unearned. You know, I guess with Caper Ruiz, you're going to have some of that. I guess you have to pick your spots 
if you're going to be doing these back pick throws all the time as he is. But if, you, if you're going to take the successes, you're going to have some failures, I guess, as well. The Lane Thomas play was tough. I'm not sure what happened, but that was not a uh, pretty moment for him. No, and unfortunately, this is a recurring issue for him on going back on balls hit to the wall in center field. We saw it in spring training early in the year as well. They've worked with him. He has gotten better at it, but this one was a regression falling back to it. I think what happened is he knows, he senses he's getting closer to the wall. Uh, He's kind of got his right arm out, feeling for it, and probably took his eye off the ball for just a second and in the process lost track of where it was, and it, it did tip off his glove. And that's why he gets the error on it. You know, just the kind of play, if you're going to be a big league center fielder, you have to be able to make, and it certainly costs them. It's among the reasons why, as intrigued as they are by him, there's still a question of, is he a big league center fielder or not? If he makes it, is it going to have to be in left field? And then if he is in left field, does he hit enough to be a corner outfielder, which is fair or unfair, just kind of the way it is. The big leagues, if you're going to play the corner outfield, you're going to have to hit quite a bit. As for Ruiz, I think they got to be careful with this. I think they dial back a little bit. Everybody knows now that he tries to do this. And so, yeah, you can catch a guy napping sometimes, but you got to be careful not to do it too much because there is risk involved. And especially in that spot, there's two outs. Two outs and runners on first and second. He's trying to get the trailing runner and get out of the inning. That's that's great, but he throws the ball away. A run comes around to score, and then Tatro ends up on the very next pitch getting out of the inning anyways. So pick your spots there. It can't be so predictable that everybody sees it coming, and certainly you have to be prepared for the possibility that you may not throw it right on the money. And Josh Bell, God bless him, he's always diving all over the place to try to make these plays. Sometimes he gets it, sometimes he doesn't. This one, he didn't really have a chance at. It was way into foul territory where the throw went. It's a very valuable thing to be able to do, right? These back pick throws because you're eliminating runners on base. And that's very valuable if you have that as a skill, as a catcher. But no doubt, I mean, if if one out of every three is going in the outfield, that is going to be a problem. Nats came into games on Sunday dead last in the majors in team defensive run saved at minus 30. The bullpen for the Nats in this game, Nats only ended up using two guys, Carl Edwards Jr. and Corey Abbott. Edwards tossed a perfect top of the eighth inning with a couple of strikeouts. Abbott, a perfect top of the ninth. Abbott got sent down after the game, as Mark noted. Carl Edwards Jr., he ended up having a really impressive series with some of the outings that he had. Uh, If you recall, he had that great escape act in game one of the doubleheader on Friday afternoon. Came into the game, runners at the corners, did issue a walk to load the bases, but then had three consecutive strikeouts. Then he pitched again on Friday night game. Two of the doubleheader, perfect top of the seventh in that game. Edwards ERA for the season, 295. And as we've talked about, that's inflated somewhat by his first outing with the Nats. Then I think he had one other bad outing. So it's really like two bad outings. He's got a whip of 0.84. He's averaging more than a strikeout per inning. It's been a really nice find. At this point, you could argue he's their most reliable reliever because we've seen Kyle Finnegan and Tanner Rainey have some hiccups lately. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. And he has been the guy that Davey has trusted to get out of some jams. He has strikeout ability, as we saw, striking out the side the other day. He struck out, what, the first two batters he faced in this one. And, you know, we've talked about before Edwards making himself into a potential trade chip. And I didn't realize, I think none of us realized, he actually is under team control for another year. He doesn't have the full service time yet, so he would be arbitration eligible for another year. That adds an interesting dilemma to this of if a guy's pitching well, would you decide to keep him and bring him back? Or does it actually make him more valuable as a trade chip? Because if you're acquiring him, you're getting one plus years of him, not just a few months. So that'll be an interesting call here uh, in a month or so. 
Yeah, I would think with a guy like this, with an ad signed to a minor league contract in February, if he's pitching well, sell high because you just don't know with him next year. I think with like 95% of these relievers, if they're going well, you should be open to trading them just because you just don't know when it's going to fall off. And unless you have like a Josh Hader type or some freak of nature who you feel like year in, year out is going to be special, go ahead and get something for him. But I guess it's nice to know if there's nothing there for him, you could keep him. Maybe he's good again for you next year and trade him next year. Like you would have that option with him. So that definitely is worth noting. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It feels like everything is going up these days, including home prices. And so there's no better time to have the look of your home go up and the value of your home go up with new windows from Window Nation. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. Take advantage of this offer. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. The average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. Window Nation offers 1,500 custom window combinations, including vinyl, wood, and fiberglass. Window Nation is the best. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask for the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 
The 2-2, Hernandez swings, punches it left side, through the open hole, off the glove of a diving Gregorius, coming around third to score is Luis Garcia, and the Nationals lead it by a score of 9-3. Yadiel Hernandez with his third hit of the day. Well, the Nats made it. This was some stretch, as we discussed, 14 games in 13 days, lengthy homestand, five-game series against the Phillies. You now get a couple of off days over the next four days, and then comes this two-game series at the Orioles. Uh, you know, the Orioles are better this season, but they still do have some issues. And the the Orioles on Sunday started Austin Voth. Uh, Jordan Lyles was a late scratch, so uh, Mr. Voth ended up getting the start. I mean, look, I don't think the Nats can be feeling great about anything right now. We know the way that this season is going, but I've got to think that at least if you're Davey Martinez, if you're this team, the ability to have a, a scheduled day off to breathe a little bit here is welcome because what happened, especially over this last week, that's not sustainable. You cannot keep going like that, operating on the fumes that this team was operating on. Yeah, no, they've been counting down the days. They've been looking forward to this off day for quite a while. And I'll tell you what, it really helps that they did get back-to-back quality starts going into it. So the pitching staff, while they are on fumes, they're not as much, you know, this could have been one of those where they had to use everybody up today as well. And now you're only getting the one day off. Really, most of their big guys will have had several days off before they take the mound again in Baltimore. So it is kind of like hitting the reset button. And you only got to play two games and get another day off before you go to Texas. Texas. This week, we went into it. We said Braves and Phillies, no off days, pitching issues, doubleheader. It's going to be rough. It absolutely was rough. It was almost worst case scenario. The schedule eases up now. Now, that doesn't mean that they are going to win a bunch of games just because they're playing some lesser teams, but at least it gives you the belief that they're going to be in a better position and not facing teams that are going to blast them out of the ballpark. I'm curious to see Camden Yards with the expanded left field fence. What kind of difference does that make on a Nationals team that has given up way more homers than it has hit? Maybe this actually helps the pitching staff somewhat. I'm curious to see that. I know it's going to be warm, so maybe the ball will fly. And then uh, against a Texas team that is rebuilding as well. And then they come home to play the Pirates and the Marlins. And I know they've been terrible against the Marlins this year, but I'd still rather face them than the Braves or the Phillies or the Mets who have annihilated them as well. So maybe an opportunity over these next two weeks to hit the reset button, win some games, feel a little bit better about yourself as you move towards the all-star break. Yeah. The problem is that after that Marlins series, you have four series left until the all-star break. Three of the four series are against the Phillies and the Braves. The Nats are not done with Philadelphia and Atlanta. Two of the Nats' final three series prior to the break are against the Braves. So things could get better and then they could get worse again, but we shall see. Uh, And yes, the left field wall at Camden Yards, your massing colleague, Jim Palmer, refers to that as the Great Wall of Baltimore because it's, it's become like such a thing. A lot of Orioles players are not happy about that wall, but that was needed. And Mike Elias, the executive vice president and general manager, said it. Pitchers don't want to come here. We need to make this less of a hitter-friendly park. So I get what they were doing with that, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what ends up going down. A few roster moves announced by the Nats uh, later here on Sunday afternoon. So you mentioned Corey Abbott being optioned to Rochester. The Nats also announced that uh, they have requested unconditional release waivers on D. Strange Gordon. So he was DFA'd. So I guess we take that to mean that he refused an assignment to AAA or not necessarily? I think what that means is he cleared waivers. You you have to spend your 72 hours after the DFA, see if anybody claims you. Nobody did. Then, because he's a veteran, he has the option of whether to report to AAA or not. It would sound like he informed them that he's not going to. And so they're going to give him the opportunity to become a free agent. And 
Um, I hope he lands somewhere. The timing of this is unfortunate because he and his wife just had a baby a couple weeks ago. I know they didn't want to do that to him on a human level, but they had to make a move because the pitching staff was in such shambles. And so they did. And frankly, he just wasn't playing very much the way that they've arranged this now. Once Luis Garcia was their everyday shortstop and A. Ray Adrianza was off the IL, there just weren't opportunities for him. So I hope he gets a chance. He's a really nice guy. He was enjoying, you know, kind of a little bit of a nice comeback because he bounced around last year, didn't play in the big leagues. Hopefully he gets another shot. And part of the reason that they made this move is to give him that opportunity now to catch on with somebody else. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. We thank Melissa Cohen for her photo with her dad on, on this uh, Father's Day Sunday 2022 and a Good-looking Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. You can get yours by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. So we're going to leave you with something very special right now. Tim Shovers had a chance to chat with Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We had Bob on the podcast last year. He was good enough to give us some time again this year. And we have Bob on to discuss all-time greats from the Homestead Grays, which was the D.C. area Negro Leagues team that had so much success back in the day. So last year when we had on Bob Kendrick, we talked about not just maybe the greatest player in the history of the Homestead Grays, but maybe in the history of the Negro Leagues. And some people might say the greatest player in the history of baseball, period, Josh Gibson. Well, this year, Bob is joining us to talk about Ray Brown. Ray Brown was a pitcher and an outfielder for the Homestead Grays in the 1930s and 1940s. Some incredible numbers put up by Ray Brown. And so we leave you now with the great Bob Kendrick, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Bob, when you hear the name Ray Brown, what do you think of? One of the greatest pitchers, not in black baseball history, but in baseball history. And in recent times, with all the excitement, and rightfully so, in and around the great Shohei Otani, And being such a big two-way star, it has now given us an opportunity to tout the likes of Ray Brown, who when he wasn't dominating on the mound, he played the outfield and was an outstanding outfielder and hitter for the Homestead grades for so many years. And so we love the fact that there's been so much attention brought to the feats of Otani and people are saying, well, you know, this hasn't happened since Babe Ruth. And we're here to tell you, oh, yes, no, it has. And, and, and we got a chance to rattle off some of those great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues. And Ray Brown is one of them. Uh, and another guy there in the D.C. area didn't play there in D.C., but played in, in Baltimore and lived and died in Baltimore, Leon Day and Hilton Smith and Bullet Rogan and Double Duty Radcliffe. So it gives us that opportunity. But Ray Brown was one of those great two-way stars from the Negro Leagues. Ray Brown was a frontline pitcher. He's a number one kind of guy. That number one stuff. And Ray Brown, had he been given the opportunity to play in the major leagues, would have dominated in the major leagues as well. In 1938, the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper listed Brown as one of five Negro League stars who would certainly be major leaguers if the color barrier had been broken at the time. The others that were listed, Bob, were Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard, and Satchel Paige. No surprise on the names. My question to you is, why isn't Ray Brown, why hasn't his name stood the test of time like those other guys I just mentioned? Yeah, because there are certain stars who are stars among stars. 
their personalities, their characteristics, everything. And so they rise above the lore and legend. Or I should say there's so much lore and legend surrounding them. So the name that you just rattled off, there's not much more lore around the likes of Josh Gibson, Satchel Page, and Cool Papa Bell. You know, so most baseball fans have at least heard those names. Now, they may not know just how great they really were, but they've likely heard those names. Ray Brown falls into that category of guys who were somewhat unsung because their personalities were not the likes of the the likes of Satchel and Cool and Josh, or they didn't have the mythical mystique in and around them. Ray Brown is like the Martin DeHigos of the world, the Hilton Smiths of the world, the Leon Days of the world, who were just as good, just as great, but didn't get the necessary fanfare that some of those names that you just rattled off. And the interesting thing, Tim, all those names that you just rattled off, they were all there playing for the Homestead Grays. Uh-huh. And if they weren't playing for the Homestead Grays, they were playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. So can you imagine had the Pittsburgh Pirates been the one that said, you know what, we're going to bring that talent that was right there in their backyard to our club. Oh, my goodness. What would the Pirates have been like if they had been bold enough to try and bring that? And it's sitting right there in their backyard, man. The names that you just rattle off, those are some of the biggest stars in black baseball history. And they were right there in the Pirates' backyard. Bob, let me ask you a hypothetical here. Let's say there's a baseball game and your life depends on it and the opposing pitcher is Satchel Paige. From the Negro League pool, would Ray Brown have been your choice to be your starting pitcher that day or would you have gone with someone else? Ooh, man, if they got to go against Satchel, Ray Brown would certainly be amongst my list of. Leon Day had a tendency to fare really well. Leon Day rose to the occasion. But, you know, it's interesting, Tim, that when I used to talk to Buck O'Neill about Satchel, and as Buck O'Neill would say, the Kansas City Monarchs were always a great team, always had great talent throughout their history. But when Satchel was on the mound, he took them to another level. But what, what did Satchel do? He brought out the best in the competition. So now everybody wants to rise to meet that level because if you're going to make a name for yourself, there's no better way to do it than beating Satchel. But Ray Brown was, a, as they, as they would describe, a Sunday pitcher. And see, in the Negro League, you always pitch your best on Sunday because that's where you're going to draw the biggest crowds. So I would have no squabbles pitting Ray Brown if he got to go against Satchel. Now, because you got to have an ace if you're going to go against Satchel. Uh, and when Satchel was locked and loaded, man, I just don't know if anyone could touch him. Now, the question is, could you always get him locked in? Uh, and so, you know, Satchel, Satchel was such a show. And, and that's why he and Ray Brown are polar opposites in that regard. Ray Brown's college-educated man. Ray Brown received his degree from Wilberforce uh, university in Ohio. Well, it was probably Wilberforce College at that time. And, and so he's very bright, intellectual, great athlete. So no, I'd have no problem bringing Ray Brown in to, if he got to face the great Satchel Page. Although historically, Leon Day seemed to do better against Page. Leon Day 
And, and to give you an indication of Leon Day, and I know this is all about Ray Brown, the great Monty Irvin said Bob Gibson had nothing on Leon Day. If you ever saw Bob Gibson pitch, then you saw Leon Day pitch. That same kind of competitive spirit. But Ray Brown wanted to beat you too. And uh, he was a frontline number one. And so, yeah, no, I'd have no problem bringing Ray Brown up to face the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. And, and, and I got a feeling that neither side were going to get much. You get one or two, and you probably got a chance to win that game. <laughs> <laughs> I love that expression, Sunday pitcher. I think that's so fantastic. And uh, Leon Day, by the way, uh, born in Alexandria and, uh, and pitched primary in Baltimore. Last question for you, Bob. This is more big picture. Last summer, President Biden signs Juneteenth into law as a federal holiday. So this is the first season where it's now been established law that that it's an annual holiday in this country. What would you like to see, if anything, for Major League Baseball on an annual basis on Juneteenth? Would you like to see it be a weekend that they incorporate honoring the Negro Leagues? What are your hopes or envisionments, if anything, for this moving forward? That's an interesting question, Tim, because I go back now to December of 2020 when Major League Baseball made the epic announcement that it was recognizing the Negro Leagues for what we already knew it to be here at Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, a major league. And that was monumental because that was historical validation for what these leagues represented both on and off the field. So now that this is part of that scenario, and with the passing of legislation designating Juneteenth as a national holiday, there are certainly opportunities to continue to tout why the Negro Leagues are so important and that they should be celebrated. Whether it's Juneteenth or any other day, I absolutely believe there should be an annual national day of recognition baseball-wide for the Negro Leagues. Because if they are going to be embraced now as a major league, and our focus is on diversity in our sport, then I think it is very important that we don't forget about the heroes of the Negro Leagues. Because there are certainly people who are concerned that what baseball has done, and I absolutely applaud Major League Baseball for doing what I told people the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum have been trying to do for the last three decades, and that is to raise the level of awareness. They did it with one swipe of the pen when they made that epic decision. More people are interested in the Negro Leagues than ever before. But what we do have to be careful about is that as these records are being rolled into the annals of Major League Baseball history, as time passes on and a new generation of baseball fans start to now see the names of those Negro League stars, many who you and I have talked about in this episode, and they're going to be right there next to the names of those who played in the major leagues. And they're going to think that it was always that way. And we cannot allow that to happen. We cannot allow the sacrifice that these athletes made to help make our game and our country better be seemingly kind of washed away. You know, so on one side, we've rightfully celebrated their accomplishments. But on the other side, we have to maintain the fact that this did indeed happen and that they overcame tremendous social adversity to play this game. And so having an annual day of recognition for the Negro Leagues 
And obviously, we believe the embracing of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is the ideal way to make sure that the legacy of the Negro Leagues is never lost. And, and so whether it is on Juneteenth or some other day, you know, I am good with that. Juneteenth seems to be a day in which there will obviously be a lot of emphasis and focus on. And, and if that is ultimately the day that we settle, out, settle on, I'm good with that too. But I do think we absolutely need to find a way to make annually a national day of recognition, not to usurp what the clubs are doing individually. Obviously, as you well know, there are some clubs who do a Negro League salute every year. We don't want to do away with that. Every city that does that should continue to do that. But to see baseball have an actual national day, very similar to what we did in 2020, even though the pandemic kept fans away. You remember, you saw all the clubs wearing our 100th anniversary patch as we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. And I think that is something that baseball fans would enjoy. It would be tremendously meaningful to all of us here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as well, and for the remaining surviving Negro Leaguers to make sure that they are being remembered and celebrated for what they did for our game, and even more importantly, what they did for our country. Thank you so much for your time, and Bob Hosts, uh, Black Diamonds Podcast. You can find it on all the usual podcast platforms. It's a Sirius XM podcast, and uh, if you look at some of the recent episodes, there is Story of Leon Day, if you want to learn more about him. Uh, the Women of the Negro Leagues, that's an episode I highly recommend, and uh, Frank White and the 1942 Kansas City Monarchs. So if you love baseball history, but you're looking to get more into your old <laughs> noggin, uh, this podcast is absolutely perfect. Bob, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to having you back on next summer. Hey, Tim, man, it's my pleasure. Thank you for what you're continuing to do to help generate awareness and interest in the Negro Leagues.